0: Again, the URL is unchangedcrypto.substack.com. everyone, welcome to Unchained, the podcast where we hear from innovators, pioneers, and thought leaders in the world of blockchain and cryptocurrency. I'm your host, Laura Shin, an independent journalist covering all things crypto. If you love Unchained, be sure to let the world know with a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners find out about the show. Also spread the word on Facebook, Twitter, Slack, Telegram, and wherever you discuss crypto. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Laura Shin This episode is brought to you by StartEngine, an ICO platform focused on issuing securities, tokens, and compliance with SEC rules. StartEngine can help your business launch a regulated ICO. Go to StartEngine.com slash Unchained for a 20% discount. StartEngine does not provide legal advice. Today's topic is stablecoins. Here with me to discuss what has been called the holy grail of crypto are Rune Christensen, founder of MakerDAO, and Philip Rosedale, the founder of Second Life and the co-founder of High Fidelity. Welcome, Rune and Philip.
1: Thank you. Thanks for Thanks having me. A lot.
0: So before we dive into today's topic, I want to have each of you explain your background. Rune, let's start with you. You are the founder of one of the more well-known staple coin projects, MakerDAO. How did you get into crypto and come to head up this project? In
2: 2011, I first discovered Bitcoin uh, when I saw a Bitcoin address and sort of followed that trail, which led me down the whole crypto rabbit hole. Um, Then I... uh, bought into Bitcoin heavily and really got excited about crypto in general. But during the great crypto crash of 2014, I lost a lot of money from the, basically from the volatility. And that's what led me on the path towards stable coins. As I, as I sort of felt personally, how important that's going to be for, you know, mainstream adoption and use of, of cryptocurrency. So, um, eventually, um, me and a number of people from uh, from various stablecoin communities, uh, from like from the beginning of of the stablecoin uh, project as a whole, we ended up going to Ethereum and uh, basically setting up. We, we tried to basically make the ultimate stablecoin in Ethereum because we saw this smart contract ecosystem really as the perfect place to bootstrap and grow and grow on stablecoin. So uh, that's been we, we've been working on that for the past three years. And then finally, this December 17th, we were able to launch the first uh, consumer-ready stablecoin, which is now live and being used on a number of exchanges and uh, by businesses.
0: And one detail that I love about your story is that you were an English teacher in Asia, I believe, right? When you got into crypto.
2: Yes that's right. I, I was uh, an English teacher in China and then started an HR agency that brought in other English teachers to China and it's basically from uh, from doing that business it was that it was in that context I somehow stumbled upon uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and also I sold my business and invested all the profits into Bitcoin earning a lot of money but then subsequently losing most of it again because of the great uh, bubbles and crashes of the early days.
0: And so it was just that experience of losing the money that made you think that a stablecoin was needed? Or how did you come up with the idea for a stablecoin?
2: Uh, it was partly that, and then also just sort of the inherent uh, promise of a stablecoin. Um, so um, so stablecoins were actually invented in the BitShares community. Um, the very first design was just like a simple system where you take some like some, some cryptocurrency called bitshares and you back uh, a, a stable coin that's pegged to $1 with uh, this other cryptocurrency so you sort of have a you know like the, the collateral behind the currency um, and then what we've made now with dai is basically an evolution on that concept where we've made it more powerful and we've um, solved all of its deficiencies
0: Okay. And so, Philip, you actually work in another area, VR, virtual reality, and founded Second Life. And then you left that and have now founded a new VR company. And what I thought about your experience that would be relevant on Unchained was what happened with Linden dollars. So tell us about your background, but also tell us what Linden dollars, which what some people have called is what some people have called the first real virtual currency. Tell us what those were.
1: Thanks. Yeah. Uh, Well, my life has been about VR and virtual worlds. And from the time I was a kid, I wanted to build kind of open-ended worlds that people could come into from all over the world as avatars and do whatever they wanted to. And a big part of that and a big part of Second Life was establishing a currency because... Right from the beginning, people were building things like clothes for their avatars or you know, furniture or things like that, and we wanted there to be a way for them to buy and sell them from each other. And so, out of need, uh, we built a digital currency called the Linden Dollar. Um, it was introduced in about 2003, and it grew to, uh, today, a virtual economy whose Value whose gross domestic product total transactions is about uh, six to seven hundred million dollars a year, and a few years ago was, it was even closer to about a billion dollars a year. So, a lot of people, about a, a million people or so a month, exchanging goods and services with each other in a virtual world where. They were typically in different countries as users, and they uh, needed a way to pay each other, and they needed a way to pay each other quickly in small amounts. And so we built the Linden dollar, and we built a monetary policy, and uh, we recognized and succeeded in making it stable, which was a very important part of allowing people to have real jobs in Second Life. And so, yeah, a lot of sort of similar stuff to what we're seeing now with crypto.
0: Yeah, and as we'll get into later in the episode, you are doing more experiments experiments with that. Um, But before we get to that, let's first define this term, stablecoin. What is a stablecoin? How do you guys define it?
2: I would say uh, the very basic meaning of the word is just cryptocurrency or a coin, right, that has stable price. So typically people, they think of it as, as being picked Right, and So it's like a price that's like like $1 or €1 euro or something like that. But I, I think another definition that is also valid is just one where it's like over time on average it's stable against sort of the price of goods.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I think the goal, and certainly the, this was the goal with Second Life, if people are going to engage in trade, not speculation, but actually buying and selling goods and services from each other, they need to have some kind of a monetary unit which when compared to something like their rent uh, or what they think their work is worth, changes slowly over time. So like what Rune said, something that changes slowly over time and isn't wildly driven by, you know, things like speculation.
0: And so why do you think people call them the holy grail of crypto? Is it because it's difficult or because that will be the linchpin to the crypto world taking off or... Why is this considered such an important challenge?
2: I mean, I really think it's like it right now. Crypto is it's very much about hype and speculation. Right. And um, there's a lot of potential and a lot of promise. But it's actually limited how much we're seeing in terms of real life implementation and real life solutions being delivered right now. And I really think one of the main things that's holding everything back is this pervasive issue of, of volatility, right? Um, you're just not gonna be able to make some sort of uh, fantastic uh, insurance application or you know, a derivative or something if you have to design the whole thing around an asset that can change 20% over 24 hours. Instead, once we have a stable coin and there is this stability that can be used in, in uh, trade for goods or services, um, you know, like Philip is, is talking about, right? Like that, that is something that you can rely on for the everyday things that you're relating to in terms of what you spend your money on. That's when you finally open up the types of products that can actually change everyday lives because there'll no longer be this barrier to adoption in the form of volatility.
1: I think another piece to add to that is simply that, um, and we've really saw this with Second Life, and, and we're seeing it with Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, if people believe that the future utility of a cryptocurrency of a currency is greater than it is today then they're going to and that currency is limited in numbers they're going to speculate correctly that it's going to increase in value and that's exactly what we're seeing with bitcoin and ethereum but the real world has shown us numerous times that if something is being speculated on and in particular if it's speculated to increase in value it will not be used For day-to-day transactions, no one would buy a car or a refrigerator with Bitcoin today, given that they know they might be giving up a doubling in the value of that money over even, you know, the next month or so. And so we're not seeing regular transactions happening between people for goods and services, which was the original promise of Bitcoin. And so we've got to fix that somehow.
0: Yeah, well, that's interesting and sort of funny because there have been a few people that have bought things like Lamborghinis with their Bitcoins. (laughs) Um, But as Chris Berniski pointed out on Twitter, he was like, why would you do that? Because then you're trading it for an an asset that will only depreciate.
1: (laughs) I I think the most famous one, wasn't it? Of course, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but it was that $140 million pizza, right? The Bitcoin pizza (laughs) from some years ago.
0: Right, right. Um, 10,000 uh, bitcoins were spent on taxes. Right. Um, yeah, one other thing I just wanted to throw out there when Arun was talking about how this could be important for things like insurance, another application that people often say stable coins are necessary for is prediction markets, which, you know, that's something that everyone thinks like, oh, this has this is kind of like an idea that has a lot of promise with cryptocurrency, but, you know, still, it probably isn't going to really go anywhere if you if you don't have a stable coin. So, um there was this recent hacker noon post by Hasim Kureshi who's uh, I guess an engineer at earn.com and he talked about stable coins in it and laid out the three main strategies for creating a stable coin. Um I don't know if you guys recall the post but can you just sort of describe for me what are the most typical strategies?
2: Uh yeah, so I mean So I agree with uh, his post in general that there are three main strategies in terms of stablecoins, right? And then the most simple one is, um, I guess that's what Linden dollars uh, were, for instance, right? And also what something like Tether is and uh, a number of other currencies where it's basically, you just have, you know, a a backing of some sort and then you have a one-to-one representation of that collateral. So for instance, um, if you have, like uh, a stablecoin that's worth $1, and there are a million of those stablecoins outstanding, then it means there should be a million dollars in a bank account somewhere. And that's, for instance, what Tether is claiming that their stablecoin does, right? So basically, um, it's really... What you're really doing is you're making this sort of... um, Like an IOU, actually, right? That can be tracked and easily transacted between people. And the advantage of that model is that it's very straightforward, right? It's pretty easier to understand what's going on. Um, the disadvantage is that it's also fully centralized. So um, some would argue that it limits the the potential of, for instance, its use in blockchain technology because it's sort of um, like if you use that on a prediction market, for instance, then the prediction market as a whole, to some degree, also becomes centralized. So that's the first and, and most basic of them.
1: Yeah, if I could add, actually... What we did with Second Life was not that. We did not use a dollar peg with Second Life. What we actually did with Second Life was we uh, created new currency and sold it on the open currency market. We, Several other people, much like what we see with crypto today, there there are a number of open markets where you can exchange Linden dollars for things like the euro or other currencies. There's also a foreign exchange site called the Lindex, which Linden Lab Uh, has of their own, which allows you to exchange Linden dollars for dollars and for euros. The strategy we actually used was different and quite interesting. Um, It was that as the exchange rate increased gradually, as more people, as the economy grew, we actually printed more money. We did this transparently. We told everybody exactly what we were doing. Everyone could see the trades we were making. And we sold that new currency on the same open market. And we did that with a goal of holding the exchange rate roughly constant uh, as the economy grew. And that was very successful. The exchange rate of the linen dollar to the dollar is about 265 to one. And it's changed by no more than uh, a couple of percent a month over like the last decade. So it's been a remarkably effective strategy. And it didn't use a reserve peg like uh, Tether does. Huh.
2: Okay, that's actually really interesting. But isn't there – so there are, Uh, there's no reserves behind it at all. What about, like, the redemption, like, if people start moving out of Linden dollars? So
1: one of the really interesting things is that the Linden dollar went through a growth from a zero-zero economy to a a billion-dollar-a-year economy over the first five years or so, and it has stayed roughly flat to slightly shrinking over the next five years or so. Interestingly enough, we never offered to redeem. We never offered any promise Uh, to purchase currency back from people at any time during that entire uh, phase. Those two phases, growth and then stability is slightly shrinking. And interestingly enough, and I I can't give an answer for this other than just the facts, the linen dollar has not weakened against the dollar, even though the economy has reduced in size by perhaps uh, maybe 15% or so over the last few years. So we, uh, Linden Lab doesn't uh, sell, they sell little or no currency on the open market anymore, so the money supply stays constant. But the exchange rate has actually stayed remarkably constant during that period as well.
0: And, and any theories as to why?
1: I think there's a psychological belief that because we had stated and demonstrated a willingness to increase the money supply as a result of increasing exchange rate, it created a, a kind of a a consensual belief and a treatment of the currency as just being relatively stable. So I think it indicates that there are psychological forces, as we all know, as kind of, you know, at least armchair economists in my case, it, it creates, there are psychological forces that can be brought to bear that are surprisingly effective. And I think the simple fact that the money supply could change as it cannot with Bitcoin Uh, created a a broad public belief that it was a stable thing. And so it kind of made the Linden dollar more stable than one would have thought, even without, as Rune said, the ability to buy back the currency.
2: Hmm. I also think that just because there is this inherent economy right underneath, I mean, that's definitely going to have a big impact on the the long term, like the stuff like money velocity and and those kind of things, right? Meaning that there's just going to be this demand for the currency that sort of keeps it, uh, being useful over time.
1: I think that I couldn't agree more. Yeah.
0: Yeah, And for those of you who want to hear more about velocity, that's sort of like how quickly money changes hands in an economy over some period of time. Chris Bernisky went into this in depth in the podcast I did with him in the fall. And that was a really, really fascinating episode. I really urge you to listen to it. Um, so let's actually continue with the other strategies for creating stable coins. So we have, the one strategy that you discussed where it's sort of like tether where you're keeping dollars in reserve uh, and so it should be fully collateralized but i think the the downside as rune pointed out for that is that it's more centralized which as you know in cryptocurrency is definitely considered a big risk so what are the other strategies
2: so i'd say the next uh, strategy and if you if you think about this um this recent post describing the three strategies then this was this was described in the it's like the top right of the triangle and was called crypto collateralized stablecoins. Um, and and I think this is where you would say die and maker falls under. Uh, however, I guess one thing that's important to point out is that crypto can take many forms, right? And um, really, the way we call it, like what we consider this type of stablecoin to be and the sort of the category we would put die and maker it under it's is just Multi-collateralized stablecoins. So basically, a stablecoin that instead of just having like like a one-to-one deposit in a bank account, instead it has collateral that is uh, in in many different forms and shapes, kind of, and and um, diversified across uh, all these different uh, types it can be in, basically. And then most importantly, it's always over-collateralized. Um, so so for instance, um, if you ha- if you look at one DAI, and, how, and what it's backed by currently. Instead of it being a one-to-one uh, dollar in a bank account, for instance, it's something like three-to-one uh, value of Ethereum held in a smart contract. So you can, so instead of you can going to a bank and then be able to retrieve $1 for your stablecoin, you can go to the smart contract system and you can retrieve well, you can retrieve $1 worth of ETH, but you know that even if the price of ETH falls, for instance, there's still going to be excess ETH available for you to retrieve. And then what's even more crucial is that over time, this type, like this infrastructure is expanded to support any type of asset here. So it's not just going to be Ethereum that'll be used as collateral. It's also uh, gold through various uh, gold tokenization projects. It's also like traditional assets like stocks and bonds um, and basically anything that sort of adds to the overall stability and diversification of of like the total collateral pool, which then gives you this, this hybrid functionality where on one hand, the system itself is decentralized in the same way that something like Bitcoin or Ether is, right? It's just like some code that everybody agrees on that runs the system, and that's how the the fundamental monetary policy of the stablecoin is governed. But then on the other hand, you do have access to these real-world assets and all these various assets that are used as collateral that are sort of held in uh, virtual bank accounts, so to speak, right? Like all these various places where it's... it's, uh, like something like you know gold in Singapore or Ethereum on the Ethereum blockchain or U.S. dollars in a U.S. bank account, all of this is put together into one system, uh, and all contributing to the stability of the stablecoin. And this means, and, and the crucial difference between this and something like Tether is that even if one of the the, the points, like one of the, the 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 places where collateral is deposited, fails, basically. Like it turns out to be insolvent or something, there's still so many other points in the system that on their own offer this over collateralized protection that a single failure in the system doesn't really affect the stability of the overall system. And it can mitigate even relatively large crashes or unexpected events and still remain stable for the end user who can just trust it to be $1 or whatever it's uh, supposed to be stable against.
0: And wait, and I just, there's one thing, part, I don't understand. So I I obviously get how you can use Ether to over-collateralize or a crypto version of gold. But then what about something like US dollars? Like, where would you store that?
2: Well, so I mean, actually, if we, like, if Tether was extremely legit and it was, like, totally transparent how, um, you know, their claim to the underlying dollars worked then it would just be through something like Tether, right? However, like there is a, there is another project called True USD which is making something similar. Basically, they're calling it, like they're pretty much uh, positioning themselves as Tether, but legit, pretty much. Um, and that's an example <laughs> of something we could use as a really great collateral, right? Because it would be something that it would be transparent for us to sort of understand the risks of it, and it will allow us to uh, add it into the autonomous smart contract system And then just have it be another node in the overall diversified portfolio.
0: And when you say tether, but legit, um, <laughs> they're working with kind of like known custodians around the world and that, you know, there's everything is done in compliance with like know your customer and anti money and anti money laundering regulations. So there's kind of like a certain level of comfort that people would have in those dollars actually being in reserve. Is Did I characterize that correctly?
2: Yeah, exactly. And crucially, it's also possible to take true USD and and go to them with your true USD and then they will give you real dollars in return, which is something that Tether used to say they offered people, but at some point they just stopped actually letting anyone do that.
0: Okay, and one other thing that I wanted to add to what you're describing here is that am I wrong in thinking that this is somewhat similar to this concept that the IMF has, which I actually wish I had thought of this um, earlier when I was writing the questions, but I Googled it quickly. I guess it's called an SDR special drawing, right? And it's sort of like, I think it's a basket of different currencies or something. Do you know about that? And is, is that similar to what you're trying to do with MakerDAO?
2: Yeah. So what's really interesting is actually that uh, DAI used to be pegged to the SDR. So we used to actually be really obsessed with, the IMF and the SDR and what they were doing with this currency basket. Basically because, I mean, there are some parallels there, right? Because it's about how they, they diversify these various currencies to create a basket that's supposed to be superior compared to any single currency. Um, however, after doing a lot of research on the sort of the actual performance of the SDR in the market, we actually came to the conclusion that there isn't much advantage over just using the U.S. dollar sort of as our Reference of stability, right? So that's why Dai is now just pegged to one dollar, because ultimately there, it's just you know it's just easier for regular people to understand, and you don't really gain much advantage uh, in using the SDR, which uh, actually is a little strange. I mean, because it is possible to design currency baskets that are superior, but the SDR just isn't designed in that way. Um, and I guess the 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 principle of how the underlying backing and, like, the fact that you have a basket behind it isn't exactly the same as the way, um, like, DAI works with the collateral and so on, right, because the SDR is just sort of a one-to-one backing and one-to-one in, in so to speak, of the exposure. Whereas in our system, it's kind of that we have this, you know, we have this highly diversified collateral um, that all has, like, all these different exposures, right, and there can be thousands of different collateral types in the system, and then ultimately, we use all of that to back something that's pegged to exactly $1, regardless of what's happening to the the collateral behind it. And the way we're able to enforce that is because we just always ensure there's over-collateralization. So basically, it's because there is always going to be, you know, if there's like if there's a million dollars of DAI outstanding, there's going to be something like $2 million worth of collateral at least, or, or just like a, a large amount of collateral. So even if the collateral changes from day to day, it doesn't impact the fact that there's still more than $1 worth of collateral for um, for the DAI to sort of claim. And that just ensures that DAI remains overall stable regardless of what's going on in the market.
1: And if I could add, uh, you know, aren't we really talking about, as we look at these reserve strategies, um, these backing strategies for different uh, stablecoins and cryptocurrencies, we're really talking about a broader phenomenon, which has been an important part of the financial history of the whole world, which is fractional reserve banking. Um, You know, a bank's ability to make loans is based on the uh, fraction less than 100% of reserves that it has to maintain. I'm struck by the observation that a lot of the uh, stablecoin design exercise is one that is very similar to the question of, you know, what fraction of deposits a bank is required to hold on account, and that that's been obviously such an important and interesting issue in world history, and it seems like we're going through it again with uh, cryptocurrencies. I, I would also add that there were, t- in, coming from Second Life, There, it seems to me that there are two important different types of stability. There's seeking stability during a period of monotonic or increasing growth. And then there's are seeking stability during a period of equilibrium where there are, for example, as many people using cryptocurrency as want to. And then there are all these real world currencies. I'm, I, it, it strikes me from the Second Life background that it's very important that you understand which stage you're in. I think we're in a stage with cryptocurrency, and I bet most would agree right now, where Everything is growing because for the most part, cryptocurrency is as yet underutilized. And so like Second Life in its first few years, you're going to see steady growth as people are trying to make some use of these new systems.
0: Philip, I actually want to go back to what you were saying, where you sort of compared these over collateralized stable coins to fractional reserve banking, because I feel like it's the opposite, right? You need to put up more money than you can take out, which is a really different thing from getting a loan where you don't put anything in and you get to take something out, right? So like, I understand what you're saying on a certain level, but I feel like the individual experience is is completely different. It's definitely not a credit system.
1: Well, I guess what I'm saying is going back to what you guys said about uh, uh, maybe Tether being overly centralized. If we had a transparent reckoning of dollars and euros and other currencies, Uh, that were submitted for deposit in, say, a regular bank in exchange for uh, a a certain amount uh, of a token on a cryptocurrency, and that was done all over the world, and we could publicly see a lot of different balances that would tell us essentially how large our reserve stake of U.S. dollars overall was, then I think we will end up with a financial system with a fractional reserve. We don't need... I don't see the re- – I personally, although I'm not an expert on this, don't see the reason why we would need to collateralize beyond 100%. We should be able to collateralize less than 100%, just like we do with the regular banking system, I think.
2: So so I just want to add some here about what fractional reserve actually means. Um, because it means – so it's an interesting point, this this like overcollateralization. Isn't that the opposite of fractional reserve, for instance? So what fractional reserve actually means is – how much of the reserve, like how much of the bank's collateral is held with the central bank, and how much is held with, like, you know, the, the in the various loan agreements that the bank is doing. Um, so, I mean, what's interesting is, and I mean, and, and it does, you know, make perfect sense when you think about it. Is that from the point of view of a bank, even when they're doing fractional reserve lending they're still over collateralizing in the sense that they are always making sure that they have enough, like they have some sort of claim that they feel is enough to cover what they're risking. Right. Because then they'd never make a loan to someone who they feel could not possibly pay back that loan. Um, but, well, but what's interesting <laughs> is that this claim, like this collateral. They, they did that before. But- <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: yeah. Right. They did that. In I mean, on <laughs> average,
2: right. Like if, if they're rational, um, but so what's interesting is that this collateral can take take all sorts of of strange forms, right? It could be like a like a personal liability, right? Like some a claim on someone's salary, basically. Or it could be like lien on a house, which is a really typical type of of collateral to use, right? Um, and then when you're talking about fractional reserve, you're actually like it's it's really like the fraction of the reserve that's like hard reserves, and the fraction that are sort of more soft collateral. Um, and then, in the context of a stable of an overcollateralized stablecoin like uh, Dai, it's actually the exact same uh, situation you're in because you have to also think about this: like how much of the collateral uh, needs to be like really hard, extremely tangible assets, and how much of it can we uh, risk basically having as more, uh, you know, slightly more sort of unreliable, or more soft assets that, um, on one hand, are like they're less. It's it's more hard to like predict what happens to them in the event of a crash, for instance. But then at the same time, there's way more of this stuff available, and we can heavily over collateralize with this kind of stuff. Um, so that's it's it's actually a dynamic that's very similar. And when you govern a stablecoin like Dai, it's basic it's it's definitely extremely important to rely on sort of the existing knowledge from the financial system, right? And like use existing models, existing theory. And especially avoid, uh, you know, historical uh, blunders in the banking system, and that kind of stuff, and basically make sure that we're building on top of the knowledge that already exists.
0: Okay, so we're going to finish this discussion about Maker, and we're going to also talk about Linden dollars and some other proposals for stablecoins. But first, I'd like to take a quick break to tell you about our fabulous sponsor, StartEngine. Interested in raising capital through a regulated ICO? StartEngine is your one-stop solution. StartEngine, an ICO platform with 140,000-plus investors, was founded in 2014 by Howard Marks, co-founder of Activision Blizzard. StartEngine's mission is to help entrepreneurs raise the capital they need to succeed. Since the implementation of the Jobs Act in 2016, StartEngine has helped 150 companies raise capital. The emergence of cryptocurrency presents an opportunity for entrepreneurs. In 2017, ICOs generated $4 billion worth of capital. The team at StartEngine leverages its experience and expertise in crowd sale and securities regulation to launch SEC compliant ICOs. In fact, StartEngine can help a company to build its own tokens and is creating a secondary market upon which which those tokens can be traded. In short, Start Engine provides a complete token ecosystem. If your company wants to launch a regulated ICO, just go to startengine.com slash unchained for a free consultation and a 20% discount on future ICO setup services. That's startengine.com slash unchained. Start Engine does not provide legal advice. Potential sponsors. This ad spot could be yours. If you or your company is interested in sponsoring Unchained, please send an email to Laura Shinpodcast at gmail.com. That's L-A-U-R-A-S-H-I-N podcast at gmail.com. Our topic today is stablecoins, and I'm speaking with Rune Christensen, founder of stablecoin project MakerDAO, and Philip Rosedale, the founder of VR World's Second Life and High Fidelity. So, Rune, let's, let's actually finish talking about Maker. One point that I wanted to make here is I think you're starting off with the, um, you know, what you're using for, for collateral as being, you know, Ether. And I guess, um, next you're adding gold. But I feel like the success of your project really depends on how diversified it can be, right? Because if you end up using a basket of all cryptocurrencies and then the whole crypto market crashes 90% or something, then you're, (laughs) <laughs> your stablecoin is not going to be so stable either, right? So doesn't it sort of depend on you getting um, crypto versions of other kinds of assets?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that is the one thing we're focusing the most on, right? It's like getting high quality, diversified collateral from all over the world. Uh, and and uh, I mean, the, the core team is working on this a lot. Uh, luckily, what we're seeing is there's just this uh, incredible trend right now in the space that basically a lot of projects all over the world are doing exactly what we sort of predicted and bet on, which is just making their own platforms for scalable tokenization of securities and various assets. Um, we also have a really like in the short term, we have some really interesting like individual projects such as I mean, there's, there's gold tokens that are actually popping up all over the world. And then we're also seeing um, a type of real estate token that just has a really sort of um, simple and straightforward legal framework that allows us to actually use tokens that have the same sort of risk profile as real estate, but at the same time are extremely easy to use in our system without having to worry so much about the legal and regulatory framework. Um, however, it is definitely the next step is to actually set up these strong and uh, highly reliable regulatory frameworks that will allow us to use securities as collateral. Like I was talking about before, right? It's like about like getting like stocks and bonds and commodities and all of this stuff uh, in a format where we know it's going to be strong claims on the underlying assets so that we can actually rely on them as a significant portion of the, of the collateral for the stablecoin. coin. And um, yeah, I mean, basically this is, this is the biggest, it's the biggest challenge to get this done right. And I think right now it's looking really positive. In the short term, I think we will have more than enough to uh, handle sort of the, the short-term spike in demand that we expect to come when we launch uh, the fully scalable, multi system this summer. But also, like a, a clear pipeline to towards our, you know, our our end goal, which is this state where the system really is exposed to assets from all over the world, and basically every single legitimate jurisdiction has a very straightforward way to interact with our system and allow us to use assets from that particular jurisdiction to back die.
0: So a couple other questions I want to ask you are, Oh, we know that different central banks are looking into crea- creating fiat versions of cryptocurrency. Would something like a fiat US dollar, sorry, a crypto version of US dollar, would that threaten uh, MakerDAO? Like, would that just obviate the need for stable coins at all and render your project sort of um, not useless, but, you know, obsolete?
2: I mean, so actually, we are really excited about those because we see them basically as like a highly like a supercharged tether, basically, right? Like um, like a highly, highly reliable version of the one-to-one backed stablecoin. Um, and I mean, first of all, they're really, really reliable collateral in our system, right? And it actually ties a little bit back to the, the discussion on the fractional reserve, right? Because if we can get access to true central bank money as collateral, then we finally actually have an asset that is you know that that is considered like true reserves in the in the traditional financial sense
0: but um, if it is but, a crypto yeah. version of usd then won't that mean that your project is unnecessary
2: well i mean it's still you know like, like ultimately it's still a claim on a centralized entity right i mean it the things that our system does sort of does differently is, you know, that the system itself is fully autonomous, it's fully decentralized. It really has all the features of, you know, blockchain technology that you want something to have when you sort of, you know, when you think about decentralized applications and that kind of stuff, right? I mean, ultimately, if you build, let's say, a decentralized prediction market, but you're making people use, you know, Federal Reserve, U.S. dollar token, then ultimately it's you're, it's not really much different from just having the Federal Reserve running that prediction market, basically, right? Because ultimately they have the ability to pull the plug on it at any time. And who knows? I mean, maybe prediction markets become illegal suddenly or, you know, there's just, you know, some sort of, of action like that will, could potentially make this a very big weakness in the system. I mean, at the same time, it's not like this type of, these type of assets are not extremely useful because they definitely are, but it's just like, you know, there's always going to be these different use cases for different assets, uh, depending on what the characteristics are. And I think what we might end up seeing is something where DAI is sort of this, um, you know, like the the asset that sort of stands at the center of the entire blockchain hurricane, so to speak, like the, the eye of the storm kind of, and then something like US dollar, um, like Federal Reserve tokens, or, and then of course also tokens from every single other central bank. They, uh, you know, they sort of tie into it, right? But they're still centralized. They're still sort of at the edge of the actual decentralized ecosystem. Um, and the one thing they do really well is that they're going to be really excellent on ramps, right? It's going to be a really good way to sort of move money out of the traditional banking system and into the decentralized ecosystem.
0: Huh. I like the way you answer that. That is a point that's obviously really important that I hadn't been thinking of. And one last question before we move on to Linden dollars is I wanted to ask, so if Maker is going to be pegged to the US dollar, then that means that it will always be slightly debased every year, right? Uh, Eric Voorhees, in one of the recent episodes, talked about this at length. But isn't that essentially the same thing that's going to happen to Maker? So
2: the thing is is actually that um, like the reason why DAI is called, you know, DAI and not something like uh, decentralized dollar or something like that is because uh, like uh, I was saying earlier, actually, the original goal was not for it to be pegged to the dollar or any particular asset. It was for it to be just sort of stable in the fundamental sense of the word, right? It would just have like a stable purchasing power over time uh, measured against goods and services. And initially, we were actually looking at the as like the the primary um, like reference of stability. Uh, and then, basically, because we 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 did a lot of uh, of quantitative measurements, we came to the conclusion that we're better off just pegging it to the U.S. dollar initially. But the plan is actually that over time, if the U.S. dollar sort of fails to be this really well-managed currency, which I admit I mean I would say it currently is is a really good asset, like in terms of if you look at overall um, performance of the various currencies around the world, U.S. dollar right now is like a, you know, it's a really solid asset that people can trust. But of course, it's not guaranteed that will always be the case. And basically, our plan is to rely on the U.S. dollar for as long as it makes sense. And then the moment that there is something like uh, stronger inflation or hyperinflation or any sort of mismanagement of the U.S. dollar, our system actually supports uh, just deep hacking. at any point in time uh, it 's basically up to the community to decide when it happens and then implement it through voting and once they do they can sm- they can switch to something like uh, like a diversified currency basket or so something like the s d r or even something like a diversified uh, c p i basket so actually it they could it could move to something where you just measure value in terms of goods and services and don 't even think about exchange rates to other currencies
0: hmm. Wow, this seems like a really powerful concept and that's pretty interesting. Um, so before we move on to Linden dollars, I actually we didn't finish going through the different strategies for various stablecoins, but I just wanna mention in addition to True USD, which rune I talked about earlier another project that a lot of people are talking about is basecoin and that has a, a pretty different strategy where they essentially use a smart contract as a sort of central bank that inflates or deflates the money supply based on price and there are other actors in the system I actually discussed this on a previous podcast um I'm just blanking room do you remember the the names of the two groups it's like the bond holders and then the something
1: shareholders
0: Share- shareholders coin. and then the bond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, remember? I mean, so
2: there's this, there's this. The original project that's that stuff like uh, Basecoin and uh, there's another one called Heaven as well. Uh, both of them are based on a concept called senior shares, which is actually one of the oldest stablecoin ideas. But the idea itself, which is called senior shares, actually never was implemented. And then Basecoin and Heaven both sort of uh, complicated the design, basically, but still remained with the fundamental same economic incentives. And so, from the point of view of of me, like right, like of of uh, someone who is uh, who's into maker and basically understands how maker makes, you know, works and why die makes sense, it's because there's some value behind it that's backing it, right? Which means that even if suddenly there's a huge drop in demand for die and nobody wants it anymore, you can still count on it having value because you know there are those real assets behind it, and basically that dynamic was sort of the downfall or the the problem of senior shares that it that faced that made it meant it never got implemented. The problem is basically that if everybody suddenly at the same time just decides that they no longer want the stable coin and just like feel it's risky or there's there's a run in the bank basically. There's just no mechanism to basically deal with that. Like the system relies on a continuous uh, growth over time that that always has to be there always has to be present like there always has to be these new people coming in and basically contributing to the stability of the system and if that continuous flow of newcomers stops then there's actually nothing left like that's the that's sort of the first and last line of defense is like future demand for the stablecoin um, and that just means it can be subject to some really horrible like crash conditions basically right like similar to like a run run on the bank where If enough people do the run of the bank, the whole bank just like collapses to zero and everybody who weren't fast enough, they just end up with nothing.
0: Yeah, it's definitely one of the more kind of faith based coins in the sense that it really makes you realize that the only value that... An asset has is, or, or money has is with a value that people believe it has. <laughs> um, but we'll see. There's a lot of really smart people that are backing base coin as well. Um, I believe Andreessen Horowitz and Un- Union Square Ventures invested in it. Um, so let's finally turn back to linen dollars. We did describe it a little bit early on, but I wanted to get into some of the problems that you experienced it. Experience with it, Philip. Um, I read some critiques also, and I actually don't know if these turned out to have happened, but like I, I read this critique in 2007 that predicted that Linden dollars would eventually run a deficit because the amount of money Second Life was taking in was less than the amount of Linden dollars it was creating. Um, I know also eventually you ended up banning intrasparent interest-bearing banks in Second Life, but, you know, I don't know how big these problems were in general. Like, what did you feel was your experience with um, having a virtual currency and, and the problems that could come along with it and the challenges?
1: Well, there's so many things to say there. Let me start with interest-bearing banks and our, our bans on that. Um, just like fractional reserve banking, there is the legal question of how much reserve to allow. And there were numerous experimenters Uh, you know, inside Second Life that were trying to set up offerings that, you know, feel a little bit like some of the ICO offerings we see today where they looked like, you know, poorly collateralized or, you know, unlikely to fulfill offerings uh, in the long term or, you know, or even somewhat like uh, Ponzi schemes. And so we as the company operating the virtual world had to make both kind of ethical and legal decisions about what we would sort of let people do, uh, and one of those was whether to allow, uh, you know, different types of banking schemes with different types of reserve strategies, and so simplistically, it it didn't seem to be adding a lot of value um, uh, to end users, and so for the most part, we uh, tried not to let people do that. I say try because Second Life is a big virtual world, you know, it's huge, it has a million people in it, you you can't, you know, for a reasonable amount of money, sort of police everything in such a world, but we, we did that as you said the money supply looking at this this uh, hacker noon article uh, which as you say very well captures this idea of three types of stable coins a fiat collateralized stable coin a crypto collateralized stable coin and then a non collateralized stable coin as you just said basecoin is an example of the non collateralized case second life most accurately could also be described to be a non collateralized case for as i said we never established a reserve or even offered to buy back currency We simply um, built an exchange, an open exchange, where people could trade it uh, out for real currencies. And then the only piece of monetary policy we executed was a willingness to sell additional currency, that is, increase the money supply, as the growth of the economy went up and the exchange rate went up. And I think that gets back to a point that I think is true about crypto, and I think is part of why we're all excited about crypto, which is, in a growth stage where there's genuine new economic utility, goods and services being created amongst people, you want to have a different strategy for stabilizing uh, an economy than you do under steady state where you just have, say, you know, two you know, gold and silver fighting for share amongst investors. So Second Life was like an island that kind of came up out of the sea where we went from no economic value to a billion dollars a year of economic value in the space of three or four years. And I think that's exactly what we're going to see with crypto. Crypto is not going to steal money from existing ideas. It's going to create new uh, economic opportunities. In VR, an example of that would be people being a teacher, somebody teaching a bunch of kids that are 10,000 miles away, because she can. She can use virtual reality to put a bunch of kids in a room and teach them something. Well, that teacher can charge for her services. And if she's able to do that, she's creating new economic value and she somehow needs trading uh, currency to be able to do that. And so I think that is the question is when you're growing and growing rapidly, how do you increase that money supply in a way that best accommodates the new things that people are doing?
0: So how would you release new money into the system?
1: Well, I, uh, what, what we're thinking at High Fidelity right now, and I've written and talked about this a bit, is w- that we, we've already set up a blockchain that is a fast, uh, low-fee blockchain for people to exchange uh, uh, goods and services inside High Fidelity. As we look at as we look forward uh, and anticipate growth as high fidelity starts to get launched and get out there we 're going to see the same kind of economic growth amongst end users that we saw with second life and so we 're thinking about how, what strategy can we use uh, as a cryptocurrency to increase the money supply as that growth occurs in a way that is best for the economy and so What we're trying to do, what we're thinking right now, is to try to do something that is fairly similar to what we did successfully with Second Life, but in a decentralized fashion. And a portion of the base coin strategy, which is what you do when the economy is growing, is something that at this point does make a lot of sense to us. And that is you watch the exchange rate as the exchange rate between the new currency and the old currencies, say the fiat currencies, goes up. You algorithmically create new money and you distribute it in some uh, widespread means. The, The proposal, for example, from Basecoin is that you distribute it to a second class of token holders and you allow that class of people to be, you know, numerous and trade those tokens amongst themselves. You distribute the currency to them and you let them sell it back eventually on the open market, thus putting it into circulation.
0: Oh, so is that how HFC, the high-fidelity currency, is that how that's going to work?
1: We haven't yet implemented that increase in the money supply algorithm, but that is what we are thinking, is to do something very similar to Second Life, where we use an oracle of some kind to watch a number of exchange rates. And as you said, uh, you know, a basket of, of them is probably appropriate, like you guys were talking about. And then we create new HFC and distribute it out to, uh, someone, probably a, a second class of token holder. And, you know, th- those tokens could be on another blockchain, you know, they could be on Ethereum, for example. So that, that's what we're in the midst of designing right now. And
0: I saw on Twitter, you said something about how people in high fidelity, th- that their avatars were waiting for uh, waiting at the virtual bank for their cryptocurrency. What, what did that mean?
1: So here again, when you grow, uh, uh, when you create a virtual world that has latent economic value, people are going to begin exchanging goods and services that they've never been able to exchange before, basically, because it's VR, you need some way to give out initial currency to people to get things going. You know, it's a lot like someone uh, uh, immigrating to a new country. Uh, What basic things do you give that new arrival, anticipating that they're going to contribute to the economy in some way? So one of the things that we're doing right now is for the existing... uh, alpha and beta users of high fidelity. And for the new ones coming in, we literally have a bank. And of course, this is just also kind of fun, fun way to experience VR. We literally have a bank where you can go and stand in line and collect uh, an initial small allocation of HFC. And so that's one of the strategies that we're doing right now to cause the economy, to cause everyone to have a little bit of spending money in the new economy, just as we did with Second Life. And it's the thing that we're trying to Figure out the best way to make algorithmic as the economy starts to become large.
0: So, Bill Tai, who I know is a friend of yours, and for the listeners who did not hear the episode with Bill Tai, I actually think it may have been my third episode ever. He was amazing. I highly recommend you go back and listen to that episode. Um, But, Phil, so Bill told me that you had some interaction with the government about, it was something like the IRS maybe contacted you when users of Second Life started making real money. What happened there? And do you feel like you learned any particular lessons around, um, maybe like what, what regulatory risks stable coins might face?
1: Well, first, you know, as to Bill Tai, uh, Bill is a friend and I think he's just a, a, a genius, you know, just one of the most brilliant guys that is thinking about every aspect of this. I've always, as a friend, just been delighted by Bill because he never fails to come into the room. With some big thought about something in economies that I've never thought about before. And that's, you know, having thought about them a good deal. And we, uh, I, I used to call Bill my, he was the Alan Greenspan, uh, you know, who always had these wonderful opinions about what was happening with the Second Life economy. And well, in fact, was he even his had that name. name. In Second Life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was Alan Greenspan Gollum because you had to have a, a special last name, basically, that sort of made you part of Second Life. So it was, that was a delight. And, you know, Bill was the guy that, you know, got me thinking. Uh, about Bitcoin, um, because you know we had the virtual economy and it, starting from about 2005, uh, 2003 when we launched, and then Bill, I remember, uh, I think was was the first person who came to me and said, "You got to look at this thing called Bitcoin because it's pretty similar, you know, to this digital currency that Second Life has." And so we've we've had a lot of uh, amazing conversations over the years, and he's been a great advisor on the things that we're. Thinking about um, with respect to the to the IRS, I mean, one observation, interesting observation, is that because Second Life, again, as I said before, created a lot of new value, people were doing new things in Second Life and continue to that they couldn't do in the real world. The way the government uh, looked at us, I think, appropriately was different because we were creating new value. We weren't. Uh, for example, kind of letting people kind of move from doing a job in the real world to doing it in the virtual world and then not paying taxes. For the most part, people were still doing their job in the real world, but they mm. were also in the evening doing a job in the virtual world and getting paid for that. So one one observation was that the government correctly, I think, always looked at Second Life as generating value. I, you know, I was asked one time to come and actually speak before Congress about that, and it was a lot of fun to just kind of try and say uh, – you know, this is what virtual worlds are all about. But but for the most part, they were about creating new economic opportunities, not eroding existing ones. And so we actually, uh, I think, didn't have to deal as much with the regulatory impact because there was just a lot less uh, to worry about w- with things that were being done entirely in the virtual world.
0: And Rune, do you know if stablecoins face any particular regulatory risks?
2: I mean, so what we're seeing right now is that it's not really being taken seriously yet, so to speak. Like, they, I think actually the the overall attitude towards something like stablecoins and and cryptocurrency and blockchain technology is is very similar to the to uh, what Philip is talking about with how like Second Life is is creating value, right? It's like a new economy, a new thing, um, perhaps with the added Nuance of all the ICOs creating some level of shadiness, right? Um, But I think overall, there comes a point where the authorities will have to really think hard about what the impact of stablecoins and blockchain technology will be on, just like the regular financial system and the regular economy. And currently, they're not ready to do that just yet. So that leaves us a really interesting opportunity to basically be first with our own ideas, right, our own suggestions for how it should be regulated and how it should be approached. But I think one thing is for sure, and that is eventually it is something that will be highly regulated and highly controlled because it's simply necessary for financial markets to be like that. If you don't do that, you know, it'll, it'll basically be just like an ICO, uh, you know, uh, fest forever, basically. And that's not really what we want to happen with blockchain technology, right? We want it to be something that actually impacts real lives and, just improves on the current economy.
0: I agree. Okay, so we're running out of time, but I actually want to tackle one last topic super, super fast. Vitalik wrote this blog post where he had this other idea for a sort of stable kind coin that he described as a collateralized debt obligation for issuer-backed tokens. And here's my summary. Feel free to correct me if my understanding is wrong. But... A number of issuers issue dollar pegged stable coins with different levels of risk, and then those who purchase the coins with low risk, they will pay interest rates to those who purchase the coins with high risk, and 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 like the coins with different risks actually have I think different prices too if I understood that correctly. What do you guys think of that idea? And is there any project that's trying something like that?
2: Yeah, so I mean, this is really using the sort of the traditional thinking around. CDOs and just applying it to stable coins specifically. But this is actually, you know, this is a technique that's used, uh, I mean, that was used especially with mortgage-backed securities to sort of um, attempt to tr- turn basically, you know, unstable and risky assets into some sort of financial product that itself was actually stable, um, which, of course, at some point is impossible, right, because, like, if you, you know. Zero times something is still zero, basically. So like at, at some point, you know, no matter what you do to a bunch of risky assets, you'll always end up with something that's still risky. But if you take that idea and you apply it to stable coins, what you actually end up with is some sort of supercharged, extremely stable asset, um, which I definitely think, I mean, Vitalik's idea is definitely, like it's, it's interesting in a sense that you end up with something that really, uh, like it's very close to being as stable as you could possibly ever make any sort of, of asset, basically. I think it just, like, I, I know that no one is working on it, well, I believe no one is working on it right now, and I think the main reason for that is that there's there's basically too many drawbacks with the system. Like, there's going to be a, a lack of liquidity, and especially the, like, the, you know, you have to pay a high cost for the the privilege of getting this, like, extreme sec- like stability that you would get if you, if you, uh, purchase the safest of the the stablecoin CDOs. And I think overall, like, there's a number of other ways to approach this where, you like, if you're not so interested in fungibility and liquidity, there's, you know, you can use, like, insurance or, or you know, like, similar derivatives-type solutions where you just somehow try to end up with better stability. Um, but sort of as a, as a thought experiment, I think it's very interesting because it just, like, it shows... I guess especially shows the power of smart contracts because of how, um, like conceptually, relatively easy it is to implement this with just an oracle and some smart contracts.
0: Okay, well, I will put the link to that post in the show notes. So it's been fantastic having you both on as guests. Where can people get in touch with you or see your work?
1: Uh, well, for Philip, in my case, uh, high fidelity uh, dot. is where you can uh, jump into our virtual world. You can download our software there. And though we're in beta at this point, uh, most of the important pieces of it are up and running. And as an early uh, adopter or someone interested in, you know, getting into a new virtual world and, you know, maybe uh, making money there, uh, you know, feel free to visit our website and jump in there and uh, come and find me in world. And uh, I'll be happy to try and show you around.
0: And Rune?
2: so If you want to learn more about MakerDAO, you can uh, go to MakerDAO.com, which is a website where you can just get the basic information. You can follow us on Twitter, which is just at MakerDAO, uh, to get the latest updates. And if you want to consider joining the Maker community and become an active participant in the project, uh, the first place you should go is to our subreddit on uh, reddit.com slash r slash MakerDAO.
0: Okay, and for DAO, that's D-A-O, as in Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Okay, well, thank you both so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you, Laura. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Rune and Philip and Stablecoins, check out the notes inside your podcast episode. Also, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Laura Shin. New episodes of Unchained come out every single Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby and Fractal Recording. Thanks for listening.